Well, if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, we're in Mark chapter 2 today. Short text, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And as is our custom, we ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word today. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Give ear to the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Mark writes, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, in, in the second chapter of, of the Gospel of Mark, uh, it highlights something all through the chapter that you may notice as you read through it. It highlights the growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. In the previous verses, verses 1 through 12, we looked at a couple weeks ago, those scribes there, they accused Jesus of blaspheming. And they accused him of that because he claimed the authority to forgive sins, which is something only God himself can do. They were right that for him uh, to forgive would have been blasphemy if he weren't God. But he is the Son of God. And so what did he do? He healed that paralyzed man to prove, to demonstrate, that he had the authority as the Son of God, the Son of Man. He calls himself there to forgive sins on the earth. Well, in our text here, the verses immediately following that, verses 13 to 17, um, the conflict is over a different, uh, a different thing, but not entirely different. This time, the conflict is over Jesus receiving sinners. As the hymn said that we sang a little while ago, Jesus sinners doth receive. Well, they weren't very happy about that. They weren't very happy about Jesus receiving sinners and enjoying table fellowship with them, enjoying a meal with them. Not just talking to them in the street, but eating a meal, sitting down to eat a meal with these kinds of, of people. Now the scribes here, they're not, they're not questioning his ability to forgive as they did previously. They're, they're, for, they're, they're questioning his godliness. They're questioning his character. They're questioning the, the validity of his ministry. You know, what are they saying? They're saying, why, would he eat with, why does he associate with those kinds of people? And eat with them. He's going to have a bad reputation. He's, he's mixing with the wrong people. Well, what does Jesus do? Here in our text, Jesus shows the, them and, told, and tells them that his ministry, the gospel ministry, is one characterized uh, not by rewarding the self-righteous and, co- and congratulating them, but it's that of a physician seeking to heal the sick. Sinners need a savior, and he came to call sinners. In fact, sinners are the very reason he came in the first place. If we were righteous, he wouldn't have needed to come at all. 
Well, here in our passage here in Mark, we see again Jesus, as we saw in chapter 1, he calls someone, doesn't he? Remember chapter 1, he called Peter and Andrew from from their fishing nets. He called James and John likewise to follow. Well, here, just like there, it's almost the same exact phrasing. He calls them and says what? Tells Levi, follow me, and what does Levi do? Drops whatever he's doing and follows Christ. And both times are the same. All all three of those things are the same. He calls and they follow. They dropped whatever they were doing and followed him. Well, this morning from our text, we're going to see at least three things, maybe more, but at least three. First, we're going to look at the calling of Levi, Jesus' calling of Levi. The second thing we're going to see is the friends of Levi. This is kind of the source of the whole conflict, right? It's not just the one guy. It would have been bad enough if Jesus hung out with that one tax collector, but he, he, he quadrupled it. He hung out with a whole house full of them. So the friends of Levi. And the last thing is the friend of sinners. So the calling of Levi, the friends of Levi, and the friend of sinners. So the first thing is in verses 13 to 14, the calling of Levi. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. You might remember that when he called the other four disciples so far in Mark's gospel, where was he? Beside the sea. Not the exact phrase, but but beside the sea. It's the same place where he called Simon, Andrew, James, and John. It's almost as if he's reinforcing the point. Remember what he told Simon and Andrew? Follow me and you will become, I will make you, excuse me, I, I will make you become fishers of men. It's like Mark is kind of pointing out the background and saying, he's still doing that. He's still fishing for men and calling them to follow him. Well, now Mark points out Levi's exact location. He is sitting at the tax booth. Now, that that might not strike you as out of the ordinary, um, other than the fact that nobody likes taxes unless you're a politician. I don't think anybody else likes them. But as we saw from the rest of the passage this morning, Uh, Those kinds of people, tax collectors, were a special kind of unliked. They were a special kind of of outcast from Jewish society in Jesus' day. You know, think about the fact of this very short passage, uh, five five verses. um, Mark three times uses some form of the phrase, tax collectors and sinners, or he reverses it one time. Three times in five verses, he points out that that kind of a people was the people that Jesus was spending time with, as if to tell us how despised they really were. You know, we don't usually talk like that. We, you, might, you might say, you know, bad people, sinners, you know, the really bad people. This is a phrase that it, it's, a, it's a label that's, that's meant to stick and it's meant to show us just how much they were looked down upon by society in their days. It's as if, it's as if the word sinner wasn't good enough. Think about that. There's sinners, and then there's tax collectors. Like it's, it's like their own little category of wickedness that they were assigned to. That uh, sounds strange to us, but it just gives you some idea of how much they were hated in Jesus' day. Now, the reasons for that hatred are many. Some are obvious, right? Um, tax collectors often made a fortune. How did they make their money? They overcharged. They overcharged their fees, their tolls, their taxes that they collected, and everybody knew it. 
When you saw a well-to-do tax collector, you knew something was wrong. But that was the system. That was the reason people took that, that job. That's the reason the people actually kind of, um, how would you say, they bid and bribed to get that job. It's, it's like theft at the point of the gun, and the one holding the gun is the government. Or the sword in their day, or the, the spear. You know, they, they were what they were. The job was: you collected a certain amount of money, fees, tolls, taxes for whatever the certain things were, businesses, business transactions, travel, whatever it might be, and whatever you collected over and above was yours to keep. Well, and some of these people we know were very, very well off. It could be a very lucrative business, and a very also dishonest business. And so if that was the only reason, you can see why they'd be disliked, very intensely disliked. But there's one more, at least, reason than that. They were also despised because they were seen, to put it mildly, as traitors. Because who were they gathering these taxes for? The Roman government. So every time they did this, I mean, their very existence, you know, sitting there by this booth, out in the open, was a constant and painful reminder that Israel was under the boot of the Roman government, their rule and oppression. You know, think about what that must have looked like to your average Israelite. You know, it took a special kind of warped soul, a soulless man, to sell out his countrymen and make a fortune doing it. That's one of the reasons they were so despised. It's, it's kind of like Judas and Benedict Arnold all wrapped up in one person. That was Levi. That was the tax collectors in Jesus' day. Now, think about that again. And think about Jesus seeing him and saying, You, follow me. Fishermen, you know, they're dirty, they're smelly, they're not glamorous. That's one thing. But no, you know, and people maybe didn't like them, didn't like seeing them around. But it wasn't like they looked at them and, ah, I don't want to be seen anywhere near them. Tax collectors was a totally different category, a totally different thing. Think about the kind of person Jesus is calling here when he calls Levi. You can imagine that Levi might have been sitting at that tax booth, and when Jesus said, follow me, I can almost picture him looking around like, is he talking to, who is he talking to, me? You know, and he jumped up, obviously, and, and followed him. And it was a costly decision for Levi, wasn't it? Again, Mark doesn't highlight it. Mark doesn't point it, point it out, but Luke does. Luke 5.28 uh, dealing with the same, the same account, or the same event, he adds one little detail. He says that leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. This wasn't like Jesus was some kind of addendum to his life, you know, some kind of thing to tack on, that he would stay the way he is, keep doing the immoral things he was doing, and then add Jesus on the side. When he came to Jesus to follow Christ, that's exactly what he had to do. And so what he had to do was, just like Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, they left what? Their nets. And James and John left their father in the boat with the hired servants. Well, Levi had to leave that tax booth. And once you leave that job, that vacuum wasn't going to stay open very long. Someone else was going to take that, that spot. He was leaving a life of luxury behind to follow Christ. He even, even, even that career might have made him an outcast. It's obvious that he was willing to do it before. He counted the cost of getting that money as a greater thing than the despising of his, of his neighbors. But when Jesus called him, there was no delay whatsoever. 
He said, follow me, and he left it all behind and followed Christ. Well, you might also know that Levi is known by another name in the New Testament, and that name is Matthew. Now, that name name probably rings a bell a little bit more than Levi does, doesn't it? You know, Simon became known as who? Peter. Saul became known as Paul. Well, Levi became known as Matthew. In a sense, Matthew is his Christian name. It's his apostolic name. You might know that naming someone, you know, like when Adam named all the animals, to name something or name someone is to, it's, it's, a, it's showing authority over them. Jesus calls them and renames them, in a sense, and did just that. Well, you might think about that. You know, Matthew, the same Levi, wrote the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. So Levi went from being a pariah to being an apostle of Jesus Christ. This man who was despised by his countrymen with good reason ended up having the honor of being used by the Lord to pen part, a very important part, of our Bibles, of the New Testament. Imagine the honor, the unexpected, gracious honor that he had. For him, you know, you can imagine it would have been enough just to be in the back of the crowd somewhere, just to be included in the group. And he's one of the twelve He's one of the apostles. J.C. Ryle writes this, We ought never to despair entirely of anyone's salvation when we read this passage of Scripture. He who called Levi still lives and still works. The age of miracles is not yet past. The love of money is a powerful principle, but the call of Christ is more powerful. Let us not despair even of those who sit at the receipt of custom And enjoy abundance of this world's good things. The voice which said to Levi, follow me, may yet reach their hearts. We may yet see them arise and take up their cross and follow Christ. Let us hope continually and pray for others. Who can tell what God may be going to do for anyone around us? No one is too bad for Christ to call. Let us pray for all. No one is too bad for Christ to call. So we should be praying for everyone. So if nothing else, we should see that no matter how sinful, no matter how far gone, or how seemingly beyond the reach of God's grace in Christ, we think someone might be, that that's not the case. No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not Levi, not Paul, not anyone in this room, and not anyone that you know. Jesus specializes in calling sinners of all kinds to himself. So let's be hopeful in Christ's power and in his willingness to save. Let us look to him in prayer that he might call the worst of sinners to himself through the gospel, just like he did with each one of us who know him. Well, the next thing we see in our text is the friends of Levi. You know, unlike the calling of Simon, Andrew, James, and John back in chapter 1, you know, in, in, those, in that chapter, it, it, there's almost no detail. Jesus sees them, Jesus says, follow me, and they follow him, and we move on. Levi's a different story. Levi, he says, follow me, he leaves everything behind, follows him, and then we get a follow-up. Here's what happens, a little snapshot of what happened right after Levi comes to follow Christ. He hosts something of a party, doesn't he? He probably has a pretty big house. 
has probably a lot of room for a lot of, a lot of friends. And he has what amounts to, it's hard to tell which one it is, uh, something of a going away party. Remember, he's leaving his old life. He's leaving his old, uh, his old friends, in a sense, his colleagues, his old business connections behind. You, know, you, you can imagine that if everybody in town looked down upon the tax collectors and the sinners, we don't know what the sinners were. We don't know what their things were. Uh, but they kind of hung out together. You know, kind of this motley, motley crew of sorts. Well, he has a, a party for them to say, hey, I'm, I'm done doing this. So it's kind of a going away party. It's kind of a conversion party. He's telling them, hey, I'm following Jesus. This guy right over here, look who he has at the party with him. At this meal with him. Not just his friends, but his Lord, Jesus Christ. One thing, if, if nothing else is clear from this, this get-together, is Levi wanted his friends to meet Jesus. If there was one purpose for this meal, this get-together, that was it. Levi was not content to enjoy the blessings of of forgiveness and salvation all by himself. Think about the logic that Levi must have been having here. No one's going to accept me. I'm an outcast, I'm a pariah, and all of a sudden here comes Jesus. Follow me. He says, if Jesus will accept me, Surely Jesus will accept them too. I'm probably worse than them. He wants them to meet the one who would accept them. Verse 15, it says, and as he reclined at table. Now that's an odd phrase. If you're reading that, you're probably thinking there's a word missing or something. Reclined at table, is, it's, it's a picture of, of a meal uh, and kind of a, um, not a hurried meal. You, know, you didn't sit at a, t- at, a, at a chair at a table. You, you kind of, a table was lower uh, there are still some cultures that eat this way. You kind of reclined on the floor against the table. And so even the whole picture of it is you're not in a hurry. You're spending time. You're spending fellowship with each other. So he reclined, Levi does, at table in his house. Verse 15, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. What's he saying? What's the many? The many who followed him. The calling of Levi was the start of of opening the floodgates. All of a sudden, all these really bad, quote-unquote, sinners and tax collectors, they were following Christ. Christ didn't go to the Pharisees and the scribes right away and say, you, really good religious guy, follow me. He went for the worst of the worst, not just the fishermen, but all these tax collectors and sinners were following him, and they were fellowshipping with him. It's quite the, quite the picture. It's, it's quite a wonderful verse if you think about it. This is Jesus having table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts of society who were now following him. And is it any wonder they followed him? Jesus freely received them and fellowshiped with them. So they followed him. You know, this, I can't help but think, I know it's not a communion Sunday, but this would be a terrific passage. I timed it poorly. For a communion Sunday. That's what communion is. It's Jesus having table fellowship, a meal, with sinners. That's what that table represents and teaches us among other, other things. Now, isn't, isn't that the way it often is with the gospel, with Levi having this, this, this party for his friends to meet Christ? You know, Jesus reaches sinners through reached sinners. 
He doesn't, he doesn't reach down from the sky. He could, all on his own, without the use of, of means and other people, and say, hey, you, you know, follow me. He still calls sinners to follow him. But he reaches sinners through reached sinners. That's us. That's you and that's me. He called Levi to himself. And then what did Levi do? Levi seemed like the most natural and immediate thing was to point his friends and colleagues, his former colleagues, to the same Jesus. And even today, isn't that very often the case? That that especially among new believers, that the most fervent and the most fruitful evangelism takes place through new believers. Those who are new to the faith, those who haven't been trained away from evangelism uh, by a a false version of Calvinism, I might add, or or some other such thing. Uh, You know, someone comes to to salvation through faith in Christ, and what do they do? They, They very often, the first thing that comes to their mind is to tell their friends and to invite people, their friends, to join them for worship at church, And so Jesus builds his church that way. It's often been said, I've heard pastors do this, I won't do this. We don't tell you to raise your hands. But they'll say, you know, how many of you came to church, this church, another church, from someone else inviting you? And pretty much everybody's hand goes up, unless you're raised in the church. But even somewhere along that line, someone invited someone to hear the gospel. And this, let this party be a lesson to each one of us. Another thing that Levi, I think this passage is teaching us, Levi is not an isolated case. The thief on the cross was an isolated case. Jesus is teaching us through this this event, Levi was not an isolated case. Jesus specialized in saving the worst of the worst. He delights in saving the worst of the worst. When he saved Levi, it wasn't long until he was hanging out and enjoying table fellowship with who knows how many people that were just like Levi. Again, we've said it before, but read through Mark. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And tell me if you ever see a picture of Christ rejecting someone who comes to him. They walk away from him. He doesn't turn them away. They, any any repentant sinner coming to Christ finds acceptation and forgiveness in Christ. Jesus seems to take a special delight in taking in the outcast and seeking and saving the strays. So not only should we not despair of the salvation of any man, no matter how far gone in this life, but no one should despair that he or she is too far gone for Jesus to save. That's the message of this get-together, this party full of publicans and tax collectors and, and sinners. So if you're sitting here this morning and you, are you wondering, you know, do you think that you're somehow too far gone? That you've sinned, not just in little ways that everybody does. You know, sometimes we talk like, oh, we're all sinners. I go over the speed limit. You know, I, I think bad thoughts. Um, name something else. I might think a bad word or something. You know, the things that everybody, of course, we all do that. Some people think that they've sinned too much in the bigger ways, the ways like these people did, the impolite and unacceptable ways. And so we sometimes think that you've gone too far in your sin and unbelief and wickedness for Jesus to possibly ever think of saving you or accepting you or having fellowship with you. Then look at this passage one more time. And look at what Jesus does with sinners and tax collectors, having a meal with them. Look at Jesus calling Levi. Look at Jesus receiving and eating with tax collectors 
and sinners. Have, I mean, who do you have meals with? You typically, unless you're a salesperson, you don't have meals with people you don't accept or don't like or aren't close to. You have a meal with someone. Uh, you know, most of our meals are like you sit at a restaurant and there's people at other tables and you're with them. You're not with them, but you, you have a meal with someone. That is a close fellowship. That is a sign of acceptance and fellowship. And Jesus says, you know, what does he say in verse 17? He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're a sinner and you know a sinner, that's, the good news is you're off to a good start. At least you know that you're the kind of person that Jesus commonly calls. You're the only kind of person that Jesus calls. He calls not the righteous, but sinners. So never doubt the Lord Jesus' willingness to save. If you come to him, he will not by any means turn you away. And that brings us to our last point, the friend of sinners. Jesus being the friend of sinners. Now, in a way, in a way that's really the point of the party also, isn't it? That's the point of, of this dinner party with Levi. But again, remember that we already saw three times in these five brief verses that Mark points out, takes pains to point out that Jesus was willing to spend time and even table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. He didn't just share a meal with them, but he called even one of them to be one of the twelve, one of the apostles. So Jesus not only touches the untouchable, remember the leprous man in Mark chapter 1, he not only forgives those who can't help themselves, like the paralytic in the previous passage, but now he also shows that he freely forgives and accepts even the ultimate outcasts from society, the people that you can't imagine him accepting, he does. Now, there's a problem. It would be nice if that was, you know, happily ever after, but there's a group of people in our passage who aren't very happy about this situation. Verse 16, Mark writes, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? He's doing this all wrong, you know. Uh, now, they couldn't believe that Jesus would lower himself as a rabbi to rub shoulders with that kind of people. They would not have been caught themselves. They would not have been caught dead with such people. And yet Jesus came to die for such people. They saw sinners as people to be avoided. Jesus saw sinners as the sick in need of a physician. A day and night difference. Now, there are certainly times when you and I as believers are to avoid eating with someone because of their sin and unrepentance. The scripture is very clear on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13, the Apostle Paul tells us this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, uh, the previous letter apparently, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of this world. You know, join a monastery or something. Uh, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to do what? Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church 
whom you are to judge. Uh Uh-oh, we're supposed to judge. Uh, God judges those outside, purges the evil person from among you. So they had it backwards. The Pharisees had it backwards, didn't they? They refused to associate with those of the world who were grossly immoral. It's not what the scripture calls us to do. They, They saw them as a lost cause, didn't they? They saw them as unredeemable, unsavable, untouchable. But Paul says that the, it's the professing believer who is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or a drunkard that we are to avoid and with whom we're not even to eat. Now, what's the point of that? He's talking about church discipline, isn't he? He's not saying they're a lost cause, get rid of them. He's saying discipline them when they're living in a way that contradicts blatantly their profession of faith. You, you discipline them, and one of the ways you do that is you don't even eat with them. You say, until you, until you turn back to Christ, you're acting like an unbeliever. But the unbeliever who's wicked, we shouldn't be expecting the unbeliever to live in a godly way, should we? We can hold out God's commandments to them. We can point them to repentance and faith in Christ. But Paul doesn't say you should avoid them at all. Jesus didn't. It's the people in the church. It's those of us in the church that that applies to. And look what Paul goes on to say about that exact same group of people in the very next chapter. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, he writes, and notice he uses the same phrases, the same kinds of of sins. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who, pra- who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Were, past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, if you persist in a life of wickedness, you will not inherit the kingdom of of God, and Christ will say that he never knew you. But when Paul says, such were some of you, that statement is essentially living proof that Jesus is still the friend of sinners, that he still eats with tax collectors and sinners. He still calls them And they still follow him. He still washes and sanctifies and justifies all kinds of sinners. The worst of the worst that you can think of, uh, whatever that may be. He still calls sinners and they still drop everything and turn from their sins and follow him. In the previous passage in verses 1 through 12 of of Mark chapter 2, you know those scribes that, that opposed Christ... They, they literally kept their questions to themselves, didn't they? It says they questioned in their hearts. And the word question isn't strong enough. It, they're really accusing is what they're doing. They're saying, you know, what kind of man? He, he, he's blaspheming. You know, how can he claim to forgive sins? And yet, remember what happens. Jesus actually answered them. They're just thinking it in their heads and in their hearts. And Jesus says, oh, Uh, why are you asking this? But that you might know, you you can imagine that might have startled them awake, but we don't know if it did. Well, here, their their opposition to Christ, it gets a little bit stronger, but they're still kind of lacking the courage of their convictions. 
They actually say it out loud, but who do they address the question to? His disciples, right? His followers. You know, they, they, they question why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, and even though they didn't ask Jesus himself directly, he does again, just like before, he answers them anyway. He answers them anyway. In verse 17 he says, uh, Mark writes, And when Jesus heard it, their question, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So Jesus' words here, they cut through the confusion. They cut through the hypocrisy. He came to seek and save sinners, not to, con- not to congratulate or commend the self-righteous. He's not coming to slap righteous people on the back. If he did, he'd never have anybody who's back to slap. It's as if, you know, part of that calling of sinners, again, is also to call them to what? Repentance. You know, we, we get this whole thing turned on its head, I think, in our day. Maybe it's always been, been the case. You know, we either think uh, that we expect the wicked to not be wicked, and if they're not wicked, well, then they're okay and they can come in which that's not what Jesus did. Or, or we don't want to offend him. We say, hey, whatever way you're living in wickedness, it's okay. Jesus accepts you just as you are and leaves you that way. And both of those are wrong. You know, the, the text in Mark doesn't, doesn't use this, the phrase that Luke does. Um, but when he calls him to follow him, what is that if not a call to repentance? And Luke, Luke makes it explicit. Luke 5.32, Jesus, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees of the scribes. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. To repentance. He doesn't call sinners to stay the way they are. He wants to save them from their sins. Not save them in their sins. He call, that's what he does. He calls sinners to repentance. And the fact that Levi left everything and followed Christ, I think powerfully shows that Jesus both called him to repentance and that the Lord himself graciously and powerfully granted that same repentance to Levi. You know, it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence that when Jesus called him to follow him, he followed him right away. Normal people don't do that. On our own, no one, none of us do that. None of us follow Christ on our own. He himself has to grant that repentance and faith. And let us remember that Jesus still does the same thing today, Whenever the gospel is preached, he still calls sinners to repentance. And he still graciously and powerfully grants that same repentance unto life that he did with Levi, who's now known as Matthew. May you and I both have the mind of Christ more and more towards sinners. May he keep us from the pride, the self-righteousness and hypocrisy of the Pharisees who look down upon sinners and tax collectors as if we're any better as if Christ was, had an easier time saving us or got a better deal in saving any of us. And may you and I never doubt his power and willingness to save and to receive sinners and have table fellowship with them. May you and I be assured that Jesus really is, even today, the friend of sinners who calls them to follow him and grants that they do the same unto life. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this message in, in, in the book of Mark. We thank you for the calling of Levi and what that teaches us, that, that you can take the, most, the outcast of all outcasts and you can turn him around and make him an apostle and even a writer 
uh, of Scripture that you can do such an amazing turnaround by your grace in Christ in a man's life. And that, and that you also love and, and send your son to seek and save the lost. Give us grace to, to be sure to believe that Jesus is the friend of sinners, that he came to seek and save that which was lost, and that if his only will was to judge the wicked, he never would have had to come in the first place. That there will be a day of judgment, but Jesus came to save that which was lost. He came to seek and save sinners, as Paul says, among whom he was chief. Thank you that you delight to save wicked people like us, protect us, keep us from hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. Give us grace to have the eyes of faith, to see how much you love the lost, to have faith and believe that if your gospel is preached, you will work through it in saving all kinds of sinners, not just the ones that we think somehow are easier to save than others. Give us grace to be faithful witnesses of your gospel to those around us. And may again, may you give us the eyes of faith to trust that you will work in saving and transforming sinners of all kinds. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.